coming up. How do scientists define happiness? How do you feel, patient 957? Oh, 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 I feel like God's rubbing my tummy. One of the challenges uh, in thinking about happiness is whether you're thinking of it as this overall trait in life. Like, are you a happy person? Or you're thinking of it as a specific emotional experience. Because I'm happy. Clap along if you know what happiness is to you. be nice if there were a handy acronym that explained what happiness is? Okra, optimism, kindness, resilience, awareness. These are four pillars that make up your capacity for happiness. Our guest is Emiliana Simon-Thomas from the Greater Good Science Center. The science of happiness. The land is rich, your people happy. Who could be displeased with that? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Midnight beneath us, sorry scar. Oh, it's nice work if you can get it, and you can get it if you try. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything except your intelligence. I'm John Perry, and I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the Mars Theater in Berkeley, California. Our thinking originates at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Stanford across the bay is where Ken teaches philosophy, and I did for 40 years, although I have now seen the light and I teach at Berkeley. Oh, you turncoat, you turncoats. Welcome to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about the science of happiness. Well, Ken, psychology used to be mainly concerned with unhappiness, treating people with trauma or pathology. But now there's this emerging science of positive psychology, which focuses on how ordinary people can cultivate positive life quality. Yeah, you know, now talking about the science of happiness suggests that we can measure happiness, predict what uh, will make people happy. But, you know, you can't measure happiness until you know what it is. So, and that's the job of philosophy. So tell me, John, what exactly is happiness? Well, I must know, because when I was a kid, they'd say, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands, and I'd clap my hands. <laughs> uh, but it's a little by, like St. Augustine on time. What then is happiness? If no one asks me, I know exactly what it is. But when I want to explain it, I do not know. So it's hard to define happiness, I grant you, but most people know whether or not they're happy. So let me ask you, John, would you say that you're happy? Well, I, I can't complain about my career. It's gone pretty well. I've got a wonderful family. You certainly do. My days are filled with pleasurable experiences like talking to you, Ken. I live in a beautiful part of the world. I get to read and teach and think about philosophy and get paid for it. On the other hand, uh, you know, I think the world is going to hell in a handbasket. I'm a bit of a pessimist, and that can make me grumpy at yeah. times. So, I don't know. Am I happy or not? Well, you know, your answer is a complex answer. Think about it. It suggests at least three different things that happiness might mean. I'm not sure what it does mean, but from your answer, it might mean something like this. You, you, first, you mentioned 
satisfaction. You talked about your career and family, and then you talked about these pleasurable experiences that that you have. That's the more hedonistic interpretation of a happiness. And then you mentioned something about mood being cheerful or grumpy, and your outlook on life, you know, being a pessimist or an optimist. So I don't know. There's three different things going on there. Well, I did my job. Now you tell me which of them it is. I mean, if we're talking about the science of happiness, we should have a nice, crisp definition. One of those things over the others, or, or maybe some precise combination of different factors. I don't know. Let's take them in order and see what we get. I mean, consider life satisfaction. I mean, I mean, could you imagine a person who's satisfied with life but still unhappy? That seems kind of like a contradiction, right? Well, I don't know. I think I can imagine such a person. I mean, think of someone who's kind of focused on making money and advancing their career, and they've done very well at that, so they're pretty satisfied. But while they've been busy accomplishing their goals, they never stop to smell the roses or read the philosophy or, or nurture relationships. So their success feels a little hollow. Yeah, yeah, I, I get your drift, but is that kind of person really satisfied? Uh, maybe they once thought they were, but their values changed. Maybe it was just an illusion, and you know, that, at some moment of reflection, that feeling of satisfaction just evaporated. Well, let's move on. Uh, how about enjoying many pleasures in life? The second thing you mentioned, does that suffice for happiness? Suffice? Well, maybe it suffice. I, I don't know, but it's certainly not necessary. I mean, I, I could easily imagine someone who suffers many hardships and few pleasures in life, but, but they may still maintain one of those things you were talking about, a positive outlook through it all, and they might very well consider themselves happy. Well, that leaves the third one, uh, mood, being cheerful versus grumpy. It doesn't seem quite right, because isn't there a difference between being in a good mood and being happy? I mean, moods are shifting, ephemeral, whereas happiness is more constant, uh, isn't I, it? I, uh, I, I, I see what you mean, but happiness, too, is like that. I mean, there have been times in my life when I've been very, very happy, and times when not so much. So happiness comes and goes too. It, it shifts. You know, that makes me think maybe happiness is more of what we like to call a dispositional state. It's not something that's in you at the moment, but it's a tendency to be in a good mood more of the time, or maybe most of the time, or a tendency to have a positive outlook. But you can have that tendency, but not at this moment be exercising that tendency. Well, if that's what happiness is, I think it's overrated. I mean, I mean uh, who are the most annoying people in the world, aside from political candidates. Uh, <laughs> cheerful and overly positive people. They annoy me a great deal, and they obviously only have a tenuous grip on reality. <laughs> uh, John, that's just your grumpy, inner, inner grump speaking. You know, I, I love it. I know and love your grumpiness, but, but I don't know. But, you know, we haven't even mentioned Aristotle, what he called eudaimonia, meaning flourishing or well-being. He, he believed that human happiness was tied to human flourishing, and human flourishing had to do with virtuous activity, living a virtuous, reasonable life? Well, Aristotle may have been on to something. Research suggests that much of our happiness depends on daily habits and activities. People are happier when they have meaningful connections with others, and when they feel grateful. They've cultivated the attitude of gratitude in themselves. Yeah, that's a good thought. You know, to follow up on that thought, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shukha Kalantari, to explore how things like gratitude and personal relationships are linked to our health and our happiness. She files 
this report. In March 2013, San Diego resident Natalie Price had just lost her job. She was also out of shape, going through a nasty divorce, and she and her two kids had to move back into her parents' house. Price was not happy. I was so stressed out. I remember going to bed that night, thinking tomorrow when I wake up, I, I'm gonna have to. I'm going to be stressing all day about how I can't take care of what I need to take care of. And I woke up at about 2 a.m. with my arm and my hand hurting. Price was having a heart attack. She recovered at the UC San Diego Medical Center. Today, she's a lot healthier and happier, and she says it's all because of gratitude. After her heart attack, Price took part in a UCSD study looking at how gratitude affects people with heart health problems. One of the things she did was write journal entries about what she was grateful for that day. Honestly, truthfully, some days I would sit there and look at that piece of paper and say, like, I have nothing to be grateful for. <laughs> I got this, I got that, and I don't have this. But the exercise got Price thinking more about the things that make her happy, like playing music at her church or walking on the beach. That study forced me to think about, well, yeah, that's wrong, that's bad, but this isn't that bad. It's like strength training for the heart. Meredith Pung co-authored the UCSD study. Her team looked at some 200 people who were at risk of heart failure, which happens when the heart isn't getting enough blood. People who've had heart attacks, like Price, are at a high risk of developing it. And that's a bad thing, because half of those with heart failure die within five years of diagnosis. Pung says people who did gratitude journaling for eight weeks were happier and showed signs of a healthier heart afterwards. Subjects who didn't do any gratitude journaling didn't have these additional moments of heart relaxation. So the heart just needs a break, right? So um, with grateful contemplation, gratitude journaling, um, that allows for a little physiological break for the heart um, and allows it to continue its job for as long as we need it. Study participants also reported fewer symptoms of depression, and they also slept better at night. Natalie Price says gratitude journaling got her back on her feet. I joined the gym. It was enjoyable. I started doing more physical activities, and I became more um, cognizant of my health and what I ate. I still am. But it's not just gratitude that links us to happiness. Research shows things like empathy, mindfulness, and our personal relationships also play a big role. Take the Harvard study of adult development. Starting in 1938, researchers have tracked the lives of two groups of men. The first group started the study as sophomores at Harvard College. The second group was very different. Here's psychiatrist Robert Waldinger, the director of the study, speaking at a TEDx conference in 2015. The second group that we've followed was a group of boys from Boston's poorest neighborhoods. Boys who were chosen for the study specifically because they were from some of the most troubled and disadvantaged families in the Boston of the 1930s. Most lived in tenements, many without hot and cold running water. The goal of the study was to identify predictors of healthy aging. Over the decades, these men were given questionnaires about their lives and did in-person interviews with the Harvard researchers. They were asked things like, where do you work? Do you like your job? Are you happy in your marriage? Researchers also gathered medical information about their mental and physical health. The clearest message that we get from this 75-year study is this. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. 
people who are more socially connected to family, to friends, to community, are happier, they're physically healthier, and they live longer than people who are less well connected. The science is there, and the body of evidence continues to grow. Happiness is key to a long and healthy life. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shuka Kalantari. To hear the rest of this program, head to philosophytalk.org. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.